Hi, everyone, and welcome back at the Macro Trading Floor. This is the most actionable macro podcast out there. I'm Andreas Steno. And I am Alfonso Peccatillo. Ciao, guys. Welcome back. And uh, before we went online, Mr. Steno Larsen here told me that he just had a fantastic meal. It's, uh, by the way, August the 4th, 2022. And uh, Andreas told me that he had a huge, fantastic Italian meal. Andreas, can you please repeat what you just ate? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, <laughs> to be honest, but I think Go it's called it. Papa delle Aranciata. I mean, this this is like a pain for my ears. I, I I'm, I'm suffering. I'm physically suffering. So I, I don't know. It seems Andreas has eaten pappardelle, which is an Italian pasta, but this aranciata thing really scares me. Andreas, tell us about the dish. What was in there? Uh, tomato sauce, a bit of chili, and then some weird Italian bacon. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I think I, we don't want to hear about this anymore. It's okay, Andres. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, but the, the, the pain that this is generating on me is too much. Now, jokes apart, guys, uh, it's been another very interesting week in markets. And I think geopolitics is again at the forefront, but it's not Russia and Ukraine this time. You have to move a little bit, uh, in a different part of the world and uh, very close to China. What's going on, Andres? Well, Nancy Pelosi um, visited Taiwan earlier this week. Uh, and I mean, the official message is that the White House basically opposes this visit. Um, I'm not so sure myself. Uh, I, I would argue that this is part of a bigger strategy. We know that um, the Congress is looking into a, a new uh, package on, on Taiwan. Um, they, they basically vote on it this week. Uh, and I'm not too certain um, that this is not part of a bigger strategy. We know that I think 90% of um, the high-end chips that we use um, in everything from cars to uh, iPhones, whatever, in the West, um, they come from uh, namely Taiwan. So I guess it is an important geopolitical topic for the Americans and partly for the Europeans to stay on top of that exact chip production um, and maybe even try to move that chip production partly back to the West, given what's ongoing. Uh, the big question mark here is whether we get a big response from, from China. There's this old Russian proverb saying that this is China's final warning this time around. Um, I'm not so sure. I actually think that we could have some, ac some action this time around, sadly so. Uh, also, given that China see sees it as a window of opportunity that uh, the West is fully occupied in Ukraine. Yeah, Andres, it seems the market, on the other hand, is uh, effectively following your advice of fading any geopolitical risk, because historically, this kind of risks tend not to play out practically. There's a lot of risk premium built in before the geopolitical event that then never happens or never escalate to the point that you're wiped out. So it could be like picking pennies in front of a steamroller, which yeah. uh, tends to be successful most of the of the of the uh of the cases which seems to be the market interpretation right we've had the market rally basically into the news well actually it's more sell-off into the news but then as pelosi landed the market rallied back so what do you make of market reactions well um i think first of all it's important to note that uh one thing is debating geopolitics another thing is trading geopolitics uh it's extremely tricky um and you obviously need to have a uh, almost a human cynical analysis uh, in place to to trade on these events uh, because everything's driven by by human decisions, right? Um, it's not something that you can quantify. It's not something that you can model. Um, so I would stay away from trading this event. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I would argue that it's still interesting to see the market reaction in the context of uh, Pelosi's visit. Uh, because um, if we look at uh, the gold price, I would actually argue that there's been an embedded uh, geopolitical risk premium in gold for, say, two, three quarters in a row, um, given how uh, resistant uh, the gold price has been to um, to the uh, move that we've seen in real interest rates over the course of the um, early summer and over uh, the course of July. Uh, so by the end of the day, if we look at the entire risk premium priced in um in regards to geopolitics, it's maybe even worthwhile fading it. Yeah. What I found interesting, Andreas, is that um, we have had Fed members all one after the other trying to come back to the market this week to the to the wires, trying to undo 
some of the perceived Powell pivot, whatever it was, I don't think it was a pivot, but the market interpreted as such financial conditions are now looser than they were in March when the Federal Reserve just hiked once for the first time. And actually inflation has worsened both in momentum and in composition between March and July and financial conditions are now looser. So if you are the central bank, you, you honestly can't be happy about it. And we've had a lot of guys coming to the wires. We have had Kashkari, we have had Daily, Master today. But what all they have achieved, Andres, if I look at the screens, is to bring two-year treasuries up. And that's, of course, in terms of yields, that's, of course, the thing they control the most, right? By setting the path, the projected path of Fed funds futures in the near term, they can control short-term rates a bit better. On anything else where they do not have a direct control, they're just failing, miserably failing. So the yield curve has flattened to minus 38 basis point in two stands in the US. Then we've got um, inflation expectations coming, well, more or less flat. So there they didn't achieve much. Real rates should have spiked up on, on, on this uh, and long end real rates have basically not moved. Even worse, when you go to risk assets, that's the real party. The Nasdaq is up four and a half percent week on week. Um, spreads are tightening. Uh, the dollar is weakening. Uh, what else do you want to hear? Oh, and of course, all the least profitable companies out there are rallying or parting like there's no tomorrow. It's YOLO all over again. Coinbase, <laughs> it's up 50% in five days, mate. Uh, and it's trading, I think it's up um, around 15, 20% today as well. On the day where Bank of England told us that a long recession is upcoming. I think they have a projection of five or six quarters in a row of negative growth, real growth, um, to be precise, from uh, this the end of the year and, and, and ongoing from there. And still they're telling us, well, we need to hike interest rates. Uh, and we will continue to hike interest rates over the coming meetings, despite this um, very, very lackluster growth outlook. I mean, I don't recall, I'm th 33 years old soon, I don't recall a central bank telling us that they will hike deliberately into a long recession anytime before in my adulthood. And still equities are rallying like there's no tomorrow. I don't really get it, to be honest. Well, this must be under, from a macro perspective, this is really complicated to explain. The only thing I can try to point out is that implied volatility in different asset classes is coming down pretty aggressively from bonds to FX. Um, this generally helps macro insensitive buyers, for instance, you know, vault targeting funds, risk parity funds, levered risk takers. If implied volatility as an input to their model comes down, they can lever up and buy more. But this must be a macro insensitive uh, buyer because honestly, macro conditions are worsening as we see them happening. And we're having central banks committed to actually uh, keep conditions tight throughout this cycle, which wouldn't naturally be the environment where Coinbase, or actually we talk about Coinbase, but it could be uh, any other high beta um, valuation intensive asset class rally 15% in a month like the Nasdaq did, which is roughly two to three times a, a normal monthly move uh, if you try to, to look at historical volatility. So... The only way to try and make sense of it is that, again, there must have been some um, re-leveraging going on because implied volatility has been uh, has been killed. But central banks are on a mission. And the Bank of England thing, Andreas, it's very interesting. I mean, you are right. I also do not recall a central bank. First of all, I don't recall a policymaker explicitly telling me we're going to be in a recession. Never happened, I think. I mean, normally the projections are always skewed towards something a bit more rosy than just telling you the projection is a recession. So kudos to them for uh, being very upfront, I think. I think mistaking the inflation projections actually hit policymakers quite a lot. Huh? So now they feel compelled to come up with what their models are telling and their models are telling recession. Nevertheless, they're talking about hiking. And they're talking about QT sales, active sales from the balance sheet. And Mester just now came out and said from the Fed that she thinks they, they should sell MBS actively from the balance sheet as well. So they are committed in tightening. I, I think they are trying to uh, make sure we understand that. Yeah. But Coinbase and the Nasdaq aren't understanding that at all. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, I mean, the only glimpse of hope is that when central banks tell you that a big recession is upcoming, it's probably time to fade that story. <laughs> at least, I mean, if you, if you look at historical projections from the European Central Bank, from the Federal Reserve, I actually think that you've made money if you bet it on the reverse of those projections on an ongoing basis. Um, so, 
instead of the inverse Steno ETF, let's let's be smarter and do an inverse Fed or ECB projection ETF. I think that will work magic. Andreas, uh, one thing actually, as we talked about the intersection between um, crypto-related assets like Coinbase and Macro, uh, just a, just a reminder that there is going to be a conference in New York that you need. You actually you must attend if you want exactly to understand how uh, digital assets and macro interact with each other. It's a two days conference uh, organized by Blockworks it's called the Digital Asset Summit. And uh, I think it is the place to be because many um, hedge funds, family offices, institutional clients in general will attend this conference where, you know, speakers like uh, Daniel DiMartino, Mike Green, Brent Johnson, even myself actually will be there trying to connect the dots between the macro landscape and digital asset landscape. Should be good fun. Uh, it's in Manhattan or at Manhattan um, in the early parts of September, and you get 20% off if you use the discount code MACRO. Uh, we will, of course, make sure that the link to the subscription page is available just below um, the episode in all of the podcast apps. But Alfonso, um, we've talked about Fed. Uh, we've uh, been talking about how the yield curve reacts to the Fed speak that we've seen this week. Um, so I guess it's time to introduce the guest of the week, a very active macro hedge fund manager, uh, but also a bond expert. So let's get him on the trading floor. So guys, it's time to introduce the guest of the week, and we are super pleased to invite Teddy Valley, the founder of and chief investment officer at Pavali Global, to the trading floor. A uh, warm welcome to you, Teddy. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Teddy. Such a pleasure to have you here. Been waiting to interview you. Uh, you are a global macro hedge fund manager. And I think that's an interesting spot to be in, Teddy, because global macro was effectively dead for, uh, what, five to 10 years, one can say, because of low vol across asset classes. Right now, though, global macro is basically all you need to focus on or most you need to focus on to try and be successful. Um, so the first question I want to ask to, uh, to start unpacking your view is what is your global macro picture view? at this juncture. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so thanks for having me on. Um, I think right now, uh, we're at this weird sort of conundrum where the Fed, unfortunately, is being forced to act in a very aggressive manner um, to address one of the most lagging economic indicators, the just CPI inflation. So if we look out and focus some on our leading indicators of what the world looks like over the next six to nine months, it's very clear from a growth perspective that uh, we are going to be having materially weaker levels of growth. Um, interestingly, if you look across every different asset class and say, okay, how historically have these different uh, ratios or in individual assets uh, traded during global growth down cycles, nearly every, uh, every indicator or ratio, so call it copper to gold, banks, utilities, materials to staples, this type of stuff, is trading in line with historically how we've had these global growth down cycles. The one that's standing out the most are long and treasury bonds, which are down about, you know, 15 to 20 percent of call from the high of the growth cycle, when on average during global growth down cycles, they're up 25 percent. So it's this big, big gap that we're seeing right now, um, which to me, if I step back and sort of think about why we're seeing such a large gap, it's one, the Fed having to play catch up on the inflation front and get us to policy rates that are somewhat normalized, uh, and two, the inflation piece. Um, and the more I think about the inflation piece, it seems to me that the bonds are not able to really focus on the growth picture because of the, the high levels of inflation. If you think about people today trading and, and analyzing markets, no one's really seen these levels of inflation. So you're almost market participants are not able to handicap what's going on and what's why you're seeing a horrible treasury liquidity because this is an environment we've never traded or analyzed before. So therefore, you know, we could see based on if you're not able to handicap sort of the future, if you think back to COVID, like no one's ever saw that before. So no one knew what was going to happen in the markets. And I think that's very similar today in the bond market as it relates to inflation. Could inflation go to 10, 11 percent? Right. And why do I want to own bonds in that environment? I can't really handicap that. I think, though, if I look out and I think about inflation over the next six to nine months, I think it's going to undershoot significantly to the downside or uh, not necessarily versus the swaps curve or sort of break even, but more of the sort of the market psychology of it. Um, I could see inflation coming down to three to 4%. Um, but as we progress down that 
that trajectory of where inflation is coming in, to me, it seems that the market will then be able to start handicapping and understanding, okay, we go from 9.1 to maybe 7 or 6.5. We can now start to focus on sort of the growth cycle and, and, and the growth elements of the market. So I think we're getting very close to that inflection point where you're able to, people are able to say, okay, we can see inflation slowing. Maybe it doesn't go down to four, but at least we're going in the right direction, which allows us to focus sort of on the growth piece, which the bonds have not, uh, not done to this, to this, uh, to this day. And I think, you know, the Fed is clearly, in my opinion, they're making the second policy mistake. The first was them not moving quicker, uh, due to their focus classically on the unemployment rate and all these lagging economic indicators, which were a little distorted due to COVID. And now, they're really um, going above the top on probably moving aggressively at the high inflation. So if I think about the next uh, six, nine months, the growth picture is very, very ugly um, globally, um, which is starting to marginally change in China. So very ugly in, in DM. Um, and then the inflation piece should really start to fade, I think, over the next six to nine months as well. Um. Right about everyone, Teddy, including me, including the Federal Reserve, including most analysts, underestimated this inflation cycle on the way up. Um, we have a few, obviously, uh, perma uh, inflationistas now taking a victory lap. Uh, but other than that, what makes you so certain that inflation is now heading lower? Yeah, I think a few of the things that were causing significant inflation so on the supply chain front, if you look at you know vendor lead times, uh, delivery times or um, things of that sort, that has come in significantly, which to me is an indication that, um, I mean, if you overlay with CPI, they track very, very well historically. Uh, I can shoot over a chart on that. They've just basically fallen off a cliff, um, which to me is saying, okay, two things. One, you know, uh, supply chain is significantly improving, which allows them to be able to deliver at much quicker uh, paces. And two, probably on the demand front. So there's not as many orders, so they have more time to sort of run through this. Um, so I think the supply chains are coming back online. Um, I think that the demand piece is going to really, really start to, to weigh on things. So if you think about uh, real disposable income, that leads uh, core CPI by about 12 months, and that's straight down, um, given what we've seen recently. Um, and then if you think about just also the inventory piece, where everyone's double ordered, um, we put together a chart that I could also send over. Uh, retail inventories, ex-autos, are about 20% above their two-year average. This leads, and that's double sort of the historical high that we've seen of 7.2%. Um, this leads non-durable and non-durable um, CPI by about 12 months, um, and effectively indicating we're about to see large price cuts um, due to the amount of inventories. And you're seeing that coming through, you know, Walmart, Target, and 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 the names um, saying, look, we have just too much. Demand's really slowed. We sort of overordered. Um, you know, Amazon with the warehousing, a lot of the things that that happened due to COVID are, are quickly reversing. And one of the this thesis that I'm sort of thinking about is everything is unfolding at such a fast pace. So my leads might be six to nine months uh, saying lower, but the the pace at which the macro data is moving today is so much faster than we've seen. And therefore, you know, you're seeing the moves in the market. So like COVID, the drawdown, I think it was 30% over 30 days. The last time we saw that was in the Great Depression. We then had the biggest 140-day rally um, outside the 1930s, which led to then the largest rate move that we've ever seen, unpre unprecedented stimulus. And now I think that that crazy rate move and the issue on the supply chains is now going to come through on the demand side um, and really, really start to adversely affect uh, the growth picture at a much faster rate than most people have been, are able to handicap or think about and I think that also will likely apply to inflation. So, Teddy, let's uh, let's have a chat about the deceleration trend that you foresee for inflation, because and the Federal Reserve reaction function to that. Because if it's true, the, the Federal Reserve wants the momentum of inflation to slow down. It's also the composition of inflation that will matter. So, my question for you is: If we print CPI month on month to zero percent between now and the end of the year, we'll still end up the year at over six percent. So my question is, if we're going to go fa down faster than that, where does it come from? Outright deflation in goods? What about services? Those seem to be more sticky prices. Can you elaborate a bit on how do you see these components of inflation evolving over the next six months, let's say? 
Yeah, I think the composition is super interesting. Um, if you look at the housing numbers, just because of the way that they calculate it with owner's equivalent rent is going to stay bid probably for the next four or five months. But if you're looking at more real time, and it's, it's really frustrating because if you're looking at more real time economic data or sort of live home prices on Zillow, et cetera, those things are starting to fade pretty significantly. Uh, but that probably won't come through the data or this, uh, uh, you know, called CPI for another four to five months. So that's going to be, um, that's going to be probably the biggest upside on the services side. Um, outside of that, I think, you know, you look at energy, um, year on year, by the time we get to the end of the year, year on year, it went from almost two and a half percent of uh, attribution upside to down to 50 basis points. So we're starting to really fade on the energy front um, as it relates to the composition. And then I think on the good side, you're really going to just given these inventories that I mentioned previously, you're really going to see um, downside pressure um, given that there's the lack of demand and now supply chains coming back on online. So I think you're going to get hit from probably every angle as it relates to year on year component X, the, the housing piece. But if you say, okay, like let's, let's adjust that for, um, for what we're actually seeing on a day to day basis in the housing market, that should, you know, give some, some comfort as well. And that sort of seems what's built into the Ford swaps curve um, as you look forward. If we look at the Fed reaction function to inflation now, um, given that the Fed has been very vocal that they want to see month-on-month -month prints close to zero percent or even below, uh, what do you think it take? Uh, what what does it take for them to pivot in this kind of scenario? It's 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 really interesting. Um, so I was of the view coming into to Powell last uh, what it was two weeks ago that he was going to say, okay, let's get a you know above neutral. Let's really um, evaluate, you know, get to three, three and a half percent, reevaluate and sort of move from there and then see, you know, ideally multiple months of of uh, inflation lowering or just get just basically get a pulse of what's going on. Market like that rallied. And now over the past few days after they said they're not going to do forward guidance anymore, they've sent out basically the whole team to be like, look, we're going to keep going until we see persistent month on month declines. So. Um, the reaction function to me is very is further uh, making this policy error even worse because by the time that CPI actually fades back to their level, it's going to be you know multiple months from now, which is going to be far too late for them to make an adjustment or pivot. To me, the first move that they make is like we're probably done. We're just going to chill, and they're going to hold it there for a, a decent amount of time, which therefore makes. Um, you know, which therefore makes the forward growth outlook even more ugly. Um, but I don't, I can't see them cutting anytime soon. And I don't think they have sort of the political power uh, until after the elections uh, in November for sure. Uh, and then even at that point, I, I you know, there's still going to be hints of inflation around. Um, it's clearly going to be, you know, moving in the right direction, in my opinion. But um they're not going to have a, there's not going to be enough evidence for them based on their academic textbook that we need to see X, Y, and Z for them to actually make the, the, I think they're the correct decision. So they're probably going to be, you know, holding it higher for longer, uh, which ultimately makes the forward growth profiles and potential negative outcomes of, um, on the economy side, uh, much worse. So Teddy, that makes me think about credit spreads and equities before we talk about the bond market for a second, because after the last FOMC conference, the market basically understood that Powell has kind of pivoted. So he tried, in my opinion, to give the market an inch and they got an entire mile straight away from right. his press conference and, right. and he doesn't stopped ever since. So uh, what do you make of the market interpretation of this big rally we have had in risk assets from equities to credit spreads to anything that smells like risk has basically rallied over the last two weeks. Yeah. So I've been, I've been decently positive on risk because I was sort of playing this scenario in my head where um, commodities come in significantly, which they have sort of across the board X energy, which is now starting to fade, um, which allows sort of the inflation expectations to come in, which ideally the Fed would look at, um, which would allow them to back off a little bit. And if they backed off a little bit, which is sort of to, to your question, what happened um, in the last presser that allow multiples to expand, which would allow some of the, the beaten up tech things that have had seen their multiples getting crushed, um, reaccelerate. I think that's happened to a degree. Um, now, given their most recent messaging, that's going to be a problem going forward 
some sort of reevaluating that thesis of having a multiple expansion. Um, at the same time that that's happening, you know, we have leads on EPS and you could see anything down from 15 to 25% year on year over the next nine to 12 months on S&P earnings based on, you know, oil, dollar, interest rates. Um, so you've got this interesting conundrum where I could potentially see the multiple expanding, um, which will allow sort of some type of move that we had. I think it was 14% off the low. But at the same time, you're getting the earnings number dragging down, um, which I think creates this really volatile trading environment on the equity front, um, which is fun if you're a trader, but sort of downside biased, um, but having these big sort of uh, counter-cyclical rallies. Um, so that's sort of how I envision the, the the equity market playing out. But now the most recent uh, commentary from the Fed is basically saying, you know, look, we're we're really going to keep going till uh, we see multiple months of this this thing coming down, which then sort of makes you think, okay, well, what what was the big shift between you know when Powell came out and said we're going to get there and sort of evaluate, which caused the rally, to then you know a couple weeks later, everyone's like, look, we're gonna we're gonna break this thing. Um, and maybe they just don't want equities to be higher uh, as it relates to sort of financial conditions and financial conditions relating to inflation, which to me gave me a lot of pause on my initial sort of positive risk thesis for like a little trading time frame um, is now giving me a lot of hesitation as it relates to the equity market. So I think they clearly want financial conditions lower. And you mentioned credit spreads. I think one of the most interesting things looking forward is is how mispriced some of these credit spreads are. So I could see spreads widening significantly across the board, um, especially if they continue this this extremely hawkish uh, tone. We all know this saying in relation to the typical ice hockey haircut, uh, business in the front, party in the back. If we Love look that. at the yield curve, uh, I would argue that we have inflation in the front and growth in the back. Do yeah, you exactly right. that view? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You've got a ton of... Uh, you have a ton of inflation in the front and a significant amount of negative growth in the back. So the more that that sort of skews, the worse off the, the, the forward, uh, forward picture sort of looks. I definitely agree with that. But uh, Teddy, I mean, um, we're currently stuck with a, a pretty inverted yield curve. Uh, say the 210 spread is, uh, is it below minus 30 basis points at the moment thereabout. Um, if, if we look at the yield curve in a historical comparison, how inverted a yield curve can we expect over the coming uh, couple of quarters in this scenario? Yeah, I think I think you could get pretty inverted. So this is this is like you know, like I was saying before, you you've never seen a lot of these things sort of play out, uh, like the speed of the rallies, the speed of the moves and rates, um, which sort of makes me leads me to believe that you could see a very deeply inverted yield curve, just given what the Fed's current messaging is. And if the, the bond market finally sort of picks up on the growth picture and trades a normal growth, an average growth slowdown, which this could be much worse than the average slowdown, um, then you could see things. Now, I guess it depends on what curve um, and, and if the market's willing to say, okay, this is, this is enough. Um, but I think, I think the curve could even get, uh, this is a trade I have on. No, it's not, but um I think the curve could probably go deeper uh, negative if the Fed continues the current the current tone. Um, and it, I, again, I think it's just this, this environment that we've never really seen a lot of these things before, um, which therefore leads to just different outcomes in a, in a lot of the in a lot of the markets. Teddy, what do you make of quantitative tightening? It seems everybody has forgotten that, but I am watching bank reserves on the Federal Reserve liability side of the balance sheet down by one trillion dollars already. Then I'm seeing the pace of monthly QT to hit the maximum in around about a couple of months from now. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering, where has all that worry gone? Because it seems, you know, nobody's talking about that anymore. What's your take on QT? I've been, so, I've been really interested into why no one's been speaking about it. Um, and it seems, based on some of the recent numbers, that there's consistently undershooting some of their targets. And if they imply, you know, that they said, I think, $400 billion by the end of the year, it implies materially less than that 95 billion number guide that they've had. And no one's really, no one's really cueing them onto why, um, why they're not sort of hitting their QT targets. Um, so for me, one of the interesting things with QT is if I look back and we have this internals model that basically takes all these market internals, copper to gold being the most obvious one, and prices it relative to 10 year rates. 
right now that model would say that 10-year rates should probably be close to 1.8%. Um, so the last time that you saw such a large divergence was during, interestingly, the end of 2018, where we had another period of QT. So QT seems to have this, this uh, effect in the short term on causing a little bit, or basically suppressing bonds from reflecting reality or maybe a growth reality. Um, so I think QT, they'll probably try to keep under the, under the hood and just really focus just, you know, that, that autopilot terminology that they've mentioned. But that's, if they continue just any QT at this pace, then um, I think it's just not great for the, for the equity markets. Especially given um, given the recent commentary that they're just going to keep keep pushing it to the limit. When I try to remind people uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, etc., about the upcoming schedule for uh, for the balance sheet withdrawal of the Federal Reserve, I receive a truckload of garbage in my in my inbox. <laughs> um, it seems as if people uh, basically think that the Fed is trying to scam us in this, uh, at mm. least to a certain extent. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right, given that they haven't reached their targets yet. Uh, it may be that uh, people are unwilling to price the upcoming balance sheet shrinkage in. Um, Teddy, I wanted to to pick your brain on the dollar as well. Well, we've talked a lot about the dollar being a basically a global wrecking ball. Uh, we've seen a material move in the dollar over summer, uh, and uh, we've been positive on the dollar in this in this podcast basically throughout. Um, what's your directional take on the dollar into um, a growth slowdown this autumn? Yeah, so I think the dollar this this time around is incredibly interesting, and there's a lot of nuances with it. Um, I guess the bias has got it has to be flat to positive if we are in this continued slowdown and the Fed is continuing this this crazy sort of uh, policy um, of basically breaking the back of inflation regardless of what happens in, in the the economy or the labor market. I think what's really really different though this time um, or really interesting is that if you think about the global cycle, China is completely disconnected from where the rest of developed markets are at. Um, this is not something we've seen in years, whereby China did not do any type of stimulus post-COVID, um, while the rest of the world, you know, created, printed trillions of dollars to do, you know, basically fiscal stimulus. Um, that's now flipping where we are in the U.S. and Europe are seeing significant slowdowns on the horizon, while China is starting to pick things up. So this is a really, really interesting sort of equation or scenario that we haven't seen before. Uh, whereby the growth differential in China and parts of EM could be much, much more interesting than in the U.S. Um, so my bias on the dollar is, is probably, as we get closer to the end of this year and closer to Q1, I think my bias is probably negative on the dollar um, and probably, therefore, very bullish on precious metals um, because of this situation or the scenario of these divergences. That being said, though, you need China to really get their act together and not, you know, the lockdown stuff. Um, they need to flesh out the, the real estate, what's going on in the real estate market. Assuming those two scenarios are taken care of and we don't have to worry about them. Um, I mean, that's if, the, if those are an issue, then you can have a very, very nice move in the dollar up. Um, but if those are taken care of and China fulfills what they've said on the, on the fiscal stimulus side, um, and it's starting to come through the numbers now. I could see a situation where you could actually have a very, very strong move lower in the dollar because that growth differential um, would also likely the, the delta of when it really starts to inflect, which would probably be Q4, or Q1. When that really inflects, you're probably likely going to have the Fed backing off, which will add even more fuel to the fire and the U.S. economy slowing even worse and the employment situation getting quite precarious by that period of time. So you could sort of have this set up for um, a nice very, very interesting move lower on the dollar. Um, but there's still a lot of moving parts to get there. But um, I'd say bias is likely higher next couple of months and then lower as we progress through Q1 and through most of next year. Yeah, Teddy, I um, actually want to pivot back to the bond market uh, because I know that it's uh, one of the things you're looking very closely at. And as you were trying to say before, and Andreas also pointed out that there are basically two sides of the bond market right now. There is the front end where the Federal Reserve has a lot of influence on directly or indirectly has, and the back end, which is much more driven by long-term growth and inflation stories, right? So uh, looking at these two sides of the market right now, if you would have to you know, express your opinion on the entire curve, 
where would you prefer to go and why? Also looking at carry, implied volatility, and other uh, priced in things that are important in a bond market trade. Just given the the commentary out of the Fed, um, the long end looks much, much more interesting to me. Um, 10 and 30 year rates. Um, like I was mentioning previously, you're, you're having this absolutely monstrous disconnect between average historical growth slowdowns of, you know, call it TLT to be simple, uh, is up 25% on average during growth slowdowns. Um, since, we'll call it since 1998 when the global PMI came, um, came into existence. Uh, now we're trading, you know, 15 sub, we're trading negative 15 on that. So I think that needs to really reconnect. Um, and to get there, you have to have the market recognize that inflation is, is moving lower and, and to re-handicap some of the, the growth scenarios. Um, that being said, I also, I also do not think the Fed is going to be anywhere above 3% by the end of 2023. So if you look at some of the euro dollar futures right now, um, those are also particularly attractive. Um, but you have, I think, significantly much more risk uh, if the Fed gets more crazy, um, which given that they're academic bandits, they could absolutely could absolutely do so. Um, that your risk is that they that you have even more upside there. But that risk on the short end is actually to me very positive on the long end. So any more I think we're getting to the point where growth is slowed enough and things are starting to really surface on the labor market. If you look at claims, for example, up eighty thousand over the past, you know, sixteen weeks, which has historically been associated with recession. If these things continuously get worse, the more that the Fed gets aggressive on the front end, I think the long end finally recognize, okay, this is enough. And we're getting close to that point where you really start to move um, move lower on long end rates. So to me, the long end is probably the most attractive part of, of the market today, um, anywhere from 10 to 30 year rates. It's, it's time to get concrete now, uh, Teddy. Um, you've been talking about this growth slowdown um, upcoming over the couple uh, next couple of quarters. And you've been talking about uh, the big interest rate move that we've seen over the past 18 months as a trigger of that. But what's the trade over the next couple of quarters as a consequence of this story? Yeah, I think just keeping it simple, just uh, long 10-year futures or long TLT. Um, there's you know probably more interesting ways to structure in the options market. Um, but for me right now, uh, to keep it simple, probably just long TLT um, for, for the guests as well. Teddy, um, as always, we ask a couple of questions when it comes to the trade idea, which is, um, the time horizon is generally a couple of quarters, so it would be interesting from your side to understand what kind of yields do you target, although you gave some hints already about that. And the second question we ask is, what can go wrong with these trades? What are the underlying assumptions that could make the trade go sour? Yeah, so I think today, I think today 10-year rate should be priced at 1.8%. But if we look out, call it six to nine months, I think you can trade anywhere from 1.4 to 1.5. So let's say by the end of Q1 2023, 10-year rates at 1.6%, uh, 1.5, 1.6%. I don't think you're going to be able to get below 1% on 10s, just given sort of this inflation dynamic and my view that we'll likely settle at a higher rate. Um, but, you know, if there is a negative adverse scenario from China, then that view is probably completely off the table and you could go sub 1%. But I'd say 1.6% by the end of Q1 2023 is sort of my base case. What could go wrong? Um, clearly, if you have continued inflation prints, um, if inflation stays elevated and the Fed has to continue to go and the bond market wants to constantly focus on inflation versus the growth picture, that's going to be you know pretty detrimental to um the long end one of the other things that i've been thinking about also is that we potentially you know if there's this mid-cycle sort of slowdown thing where you know growth falls off pretty quickly but then sort of stabilizes um call it the excess sort of cash on the on the sidelines uh or in checking deposits allows people to you know as inflation comes down allows them to re sort of start their their spending again at, at lower prices and they feel more comfortable consumer confidence really improves so sort of that, that mid-cycle slowdown, which is also, I think, built into my core view of 1.6% on 10s. Um, by the time we get there, things will probably be much more interesting in the rest of the world. Uh, for example, China starts to re-stimulate and add a little bit upside demand for commodities. So I think, you know, this trade's probably good through Q1. 
Um, and then after that, it's reevaluated. But I think the two risks are inflation and potential upside uh, on the growth front that we're you know, not currently seeing. Being long TLT already, I'm happy to hear this, uh, Teddy. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, to have you at the macro trading floor. The um, final question from my side uh, is uh, from our audience, basically. If they want to follow your thoughts, Teddy, uh, or know more about your fund, where can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can uh, find me on Twitter at, at Teddy Valley, um, or you can reach out to us uh, uh, on our website. It's prevalleyglobal.com. That's P-E-R-V-A-L-L-E global.com. Um, so either one of those spots, uh, just give me a shout. Teddy, such a pleasure to have you here. A global macro hedge fund manager is such a rarity to get on the program and also uh, a nice and very knowledgeable guy like you are. Thanks for being with us and uh, we'll have you back on the macro trading floor. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. So, Andreas, quite an interesting uh, download from Teddy Valet. Uh, Global Macro Hedge Fund Manager at Per Valet Global. It's uh, August the 4th, 2022. And Teddy wants to be long 10-year treasuries or TLT for simplicity. When we say TLT, that's very easy to understand for our US listeners or anywhere North American listeners in general. It's basically an ETF that replicates long duration treasuries. Um, for reference, as we speak, 10-year treasuries are roughly 2.7%. 30-year treasuries roughly at 3% as indication levels. And uh, Teddy thinks that 10-year treasuries can drop from 2.7 to roughly 1.6 to 1.7 in a couple of quarters. So that will be a, a huge performance in this trade if it's right, Andreas. What about implementation? What kind of ETFs um, can we look at in Europe as well uh, and not only in the US to replicate the trade? Uh, if you look at the uh, European ETF market, um, there is uh, an, an ETF... Uh, that actually sort of resembles the trade. Um, it's called iShares Government Bond 1530-Year Usage ETF, and the uh, abbreviation is IBGL. Uh, that's at least one way of playing uh, long bonds um, from the from the long side, um, and it will uh, give you an exposure to a fairly broad basket of uh, of long dated government bonds in uh, in the eurozone. Uh, so I, I guess that's one decent way of doing it. There is also a um, a usage version uh, of the twenty year plus uh, US Treasury exposure in Europe. Uh, so that's another way to 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 play this uh, trade scene from European soil. But by the end of the day, what what you need to, to, to have on the books uh, to reflect Teddy's view um, is uh, basically a, um, an ETF or uh, a future um, with a long uh, position in 10-year plus bonds, basically. Pretty much. And I don't think it matters a whole, I don't think it matters a whole lot whether it's an exposure towards you as a Europe here. Yeah. The uh, underlying dynamics for which the trade should work are roughly the same if Teddy is right. And uh, he discussed about slowing growth actually much faster and uh, to a larger extent than already priced in. And he's talking about as well slowing inflation. That is a new dynamic in the bond trade because then nominal growth will be falling on a, on a secondary derivative or pace of change basis, not only real growth, but also nominal growth. He has a quite sanguine uh, view on inflation slowing down, where he thinks ultimately we're going to land anywhere between 3 and 4%, but we're going to drop very rapidly from 9 to 3, basically. That's his view, which kind of reflects, I think, inflation swaps out there. I think he's, he's even talking about something faster than what inflation swaps are already pricing in, Andreas. And that is a lag that it adds to the normal growth story that we hear the whole time. I still uh, think if you look at uh, HICP inflation fixings in Europe and how they're priced in, in inflation swaps, um, they printed roughly 6% in early summer next year in Europe. Um, in, in, in the US, they look a little bit uh, less aggressive, uh, but uh, I guess it's a reflection of the uh, potential um energy storm over winter uh, brewing in Europe. Uh, we also see how the um, inflation swap curve in, in the UK hints at uh, prints in between 13 and 14 uh, percent by, by the end of Q4. Um, the issue in the UK is that um, it is basically dictated a lot by policy um, since they have ongoing 
increases in price caps on um, on energy uh, related uh, commodities uh, at the consumer level. Uh, so basically, it's dictated by the politicians when and and by how much prices will be allowed to increase to a certain extent. Uh, so it's a bit more foreseeable in the UK compared to in, in the eurozone because, I mean. By the end of the day, it's very tricky for me to to currently assess to which extent European politicians will prevent households from actually paying the bill. Because yeah. obviously, if if you if you subsidize the price of electricity, for example, then it will not end up in the consumer price index. Um, so it matters a whole lot how much you tax it. Uh, you could, for example, just remove uh, VAT on electricity, or um, you can remove uh, an extra taxation on oil, etc. It will go directly into the CPI as a dropping price. Yeah, that's a very fair remark. When it comes to the trade itself, um, so we're looking at long ten-year Treasury yields. They're at two point seven percent, and you normally buy bonds for a bunch of reasons. You buy them for carry when nothing is going on and there is a good carry and roll down on the bond curve. You buy them uh, when you want to protect your downside on a, on a diversified uh, portfolio of risk assets or where you think there's going to be a negative correlation be- between these risk assets and bonds, or you buy them because the central bank is buying them. That, that's basically what's been going on over the last decade, at least in my bond trading career uh, experience. So right now we're looking at a central bank, which is, uh, well, not actively buying bonds to say the least. Although QT, as Teddy also said, there's quite a, uh, there's quite a time inconsistency when analyzing QT impacts on bond curves. But that's, let's say, on the margin, not immediately supportive. It could be later on because it tightens financial conditions even further. Then we have, okay, a, a slowing uh, a nominal growth. Uh, okay, that could be one thing. But what about the carry of the position, like you buy these bonds at 2.7% and your bonds, very soon you're going to have Fed funds above this rate. Actually, it could be as soon as September already, which makes, let's say, the carry of the trade and the roll down as well as the curve is extremely flat, not particularly attractive, right? Which, as you said before, effectively means your timing has to be right. What's your take on that? I guess a lot of late cycle trades um, come with a negative carry um yeah at least that's that's a very typical phenomenon uh and i guess the bullseye trade right now which leaves you a very decent risk reward in terms of how central banks are hiking interest rates directly into a recession here is just to flatten the curve um basically across the sterling curve the euro curve and the dollar curve still um, those positions oftentimes if not uh mostly come with negative carry in a late cycle dynamic. But um, if you look at uh, the carry currently, I wouldn't say that the risk reward is particularly bad compared to what, for example, the Bank of England just told us today. I mean, if they if they intend on hiking 50 basis points per meeting into a recession, um, I could easily envisage two ten spreads in minus 75 basis points, minus 100. Um, we've seen that before. In, in, in inflationary periods of time, for example, in the 70s. Um, so, I mean, you shouldn't just look at a 2 10 spread, for example, um, on a chart with a uh, two-decade uh, two time history and conclude that it cannot go any lower. I can guarantee you it can. I do agree, Andreas. One of the pushbacks I received when I published the 2 stands flattener trade, I entered it at 14 basis point plus 14, People told me, you're crazy. It's already at zero. I mean, where, where do you want mm. it to go? Well, I don't see why it shouldn't trade below zero. It's not like there's a gravity force holding this thing to zero, right? Well, obviously, there's a negative carry and roll, and that is true. So you pay effectively to be in the trade, which means if nothing happens, you lose money. And this is mm. the reason why people are not keen in these trades, because over the last five to 10 years, there has been no vol in fixed income, literally no vol, which means that if you have a negative carry, you need to do a, a gigantic effort in the trade to effectively beat the negative carry and then generate money. But as you say, those are not normal times. I mean, this two stand spread has moved something like 42 basis points in a month. Now, if it carries a couple of basis points against you, What's going to be against 42 basis point moving a month? And as central banks seem to be pretty committed in, you know, really breaking the back of inflation all the way through, 
as we heard today from the Bank of England, perhaps flatteners could keep working, especially as they're not very loved. I mean, two stands at minus 38 basis point. I don't think many people will volunteer to put them on. But, you know, I, I, I think actually flatteners are, are, are an easier expression. The other thing we discussed, Andres, is if you buy a bond, a 10-year bond, and the Federal Reserve all of, all of a sudden decides to go Volcker, even if the curve would invert further, because the front end pulls it up so much, it could be complicated to... Um, it could complicate the risk reward of being outright long bonds while it could be yeah. from that perspective easier to be in a flattener, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, um, I'm personally long, long bonds in the portfolio and I've been so for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I admit that today uh, I find the risk reward to be a little bit less compelling <laughs> compared to just a few weeks back. Uh, the reason being that um, the Fed is clearly trying to send us a signal that they will continue to hike even though they see a couple of negative data prints from growth from the growth side. Um, and I mean, ultimately, it's pretty simple bond math. If if they go on and uh, continue hiking at 75 basis points per meeting, then it's not a, an optimal position to own a 10-year bond yielding 275 or whatever it is. <laughs> because, at, of course, there's a limit to how inverted the curve can, can go. Yes, I mean, there are certain levels which are pretty interesting, but um, you're right from that perspective. Nevertheless, my shirt talks, I think, speaks by itself. Yeah. What regime change, TLT to the moon. Actually, <laughs> I'm, uh, it's, just a, it's just a folkloristic t-shirt. I am also long uh, bonds, as everybody knows, for now since June, basically, uh, 23rd of June. Um, it's working, but obviously, Andres, you are right. And also for Teddy, that could be a headwind to his trade. If the Fed would decide really to go ballistic and bring Fed funds at four and a half percent, then having bought ten-year mm -hmm. bonds at two point seven requires an inverted curve to extreme levels so, to be still uh, better off. I, 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 let me just be clear on that: uh, the target Teddy set for this ten-year uh, bond trade. I would argue that a pivot is needed to get there, or at least Pretty the price price didn't pivot. I mean, otherwise we won't get there. Pretty much. Nevertheless, I think we broadly support the trade because we do believe that inflation will slow down um, at some point to allow the Fed to relax. It might take a little bit further. That's why we believe that flatteners tend to be a better risk-reward trade in the meantime until we start seeing some more evident signs of a slowdown in inflation that would allow the Fed to pivot. And at that point, you'd rather be outright long bonds than in flatteners. We just don't think we are there yet, I think. Is, is there a fair summary, Andreas? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, and <laughs> I, I mean, I think I tweeted, was it two months ago, that in a year from now, we will be back debating negative interest rates. <laughs> I, I, I have to admit that uh, I was probably a bit early on, <laughs> on that discussion. Um, so sometimes I, I, I shouldn't um, keep the phone in my hand after a couple of beers, I guess. <laughs> well, let's put it well, like come that. On. <laughs> no, don't, don't do this to yourself. Don't be, don't be so bad on you. You, everybody can drink a beer and tweet something on Twitter. Why, why can't you? Everybody can. Um, shall we leave it at there for this week, Andres? Yeah, I think we should. Um, I mean, guys, thanks for, for listening again this week. Please uh, review us on, on various podcast apps. It helps us grow and it will allow this free content to uh, be out each and every Sunday. So see you again next Sunday. I'm Andreas Steno. This is Alfonso Peccatillo. See you next Sunday, guys. Mm -hmm.